Well, after a break that has been um, about three months long, we're heading back to our uh, series for this school year based on the Gospel John of John called um, God is Like Jesus. And our purpose in looking at the Gospel of John in this way is to try to understand more about what is what God is like. And we're doing that by looking at Jesus. Remember, we've used very often this quote by Brian Zond, God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There has never been a time when God was not like Jesus. We haven't always known what God is like, but now we do. And so today we're in John chapter 6, which should be a familiar story to almost all of us. It's the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And if you uh, remember from decades ago in Sunday school, you may have seen this on a flannel graph uh, for maybe the first time that you heard this story. Um, very famous story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 from John 6. We're going to read 1 through 15 and then 25 through 35. John 6 is a long chapter. It's very, very complex. Obviously, I can't touch all aspects of it this morning, so I'm just picking and choosing a little bit. So let's read together. It should be projected on your wall or whatever Bible or um, tablet or device you have. Feel free to uh, check it out there, too. John 6. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the people sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And then we'll pick it up in 25. Um, What's happened in the section between these two verses is that the disciples took off across the Sea of Galilee. There was a storm. Jesus came out walked on the water, and met them in the boat. So the next day, they're on the other side of the Lake of Galilee. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, 
but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, in our modern time, especially in the last couple of decades, there's been a fair amount of work done by theologians and people who study the Bible to think about two common ways of thinking as we approach, as we Christians approach a passage like this. One of the ways that we have been taught to think is that there's this physical bread, there's this physical uh, thing, this physical meal that's Jesus doing, that Jesus is doing for the people. But the really important stuff that's happening here is spiritual. The bread and the fish and what happens in this world is not so terribly important. In fact, there are threads of thinking in going all the way back to the, to the very early church, to, to, the, to, the, to the way the Greeks look at the world, that what's in the world that's what's physical is actually kind of evil and bad. And one of our goals is to shake it off as soon as possible and get to this spiritual uh, state. I realize now that I look out in the audience that I have in my audience a PhD in medieval philosophy. I may be messing things up really badly. But anyway, I think I'm pretty well, pretty well on the money with this. So we approach this passage, and, and, and particularly we in the West, and particularly we in the American evangelical church, have approached this passage to say this, this, it's, it's about the spiritual. It's about something up there that we can't really touch and feel. And all of this story about the bread and the fish is, is really unimportant. We, we need to get away from it. One of the main commentaries that I'm using for this uh, Gospel of John was written in 1970 by one of the foremost New Testament scholars that there ever was, Leon Morris. And I'm enjoying it very much. It's really good. But here's, here's a direct quote from his commentary. Jesus did not come to bring manna, and listen to this, or satisfy any other materialistic expectation of the people. His discourse is a vigorous protest against unworthy views of messiahship and a strong affirmation of the essentially spiritual character of the life he came to bring. We have been and are being taught that, that what Jesus is bringing us is not material. It's spiritual. And if, if, if you look back, you will probably recognize that. 
Michael Gorman, one of the books that I'm reading uh, on, on John, uh, says this about that. The signs in John do not point to something or someone beyond themselves that minimizes or negates them. Rather, they point to Jesus, the Father's Son, as their divine source and the source of abundant life. In reading John 6, for instance, we do not need to choose between the Jesus who feeds the crowd and the Jesus who feeds the soul. He is one and the same Jesus. And even for me, who has been thinking about this for a long time, when I, in this last week, was reading this chapter, it's hard for me to, to, to make this jump from the one way of thinking to the other. It's just not easy. So I, I, it will require effort on our part. It's deeply, deeply embedded in us that the material and the spiritual, however you define that, are equally valid and equally important and equally saved and equally part of life. There is no separation between these two from the biblical perspective. And the second um, a thought pattern that we have as we approach... Um, this passage, is that the essence of this passage is trying to tell us what we need to believe or do in order to gain eternal life, by which we mean go to heaven when you die. So we read this passage and we're looking for, Jesus is pointing us to, quote, eternal life, and then we're asking ourselves the question, what do I need to do or believe in order to get there, which is also part of this whole thing of getting out of the world and moving into some spiritual state. I've talked about this lots of times over the last months and years. But you will remember that this term eternal life in the Bible is in the New Testament, particularly is not referring to some heaven when we die. It's referring to the age of God, the age of the kingdom of God, coming and meeting the kingdom of man, empire, and eventually conquering it and ending up in the time when the kingdom of God is going to have the rule over all things. What that's going to look like isn't super clear. But one thing it is not is some kind of a pulling ourselves loose from this material world and ending up in some spiritual place sometime in the future far removed from all of this that God has made. And again, if you, this is a hard paradigm for us to, to, to lose because when you read it, that's exactly what it says. Believe this and you get eternal life. Well, of course, we know what that means. I think it's really important to just try to try to think about what Jesus is actually saying and what the people understood and what that tells us about how we are approaching this whole message about Jesus being life and bringing life. So what happens in this story, and we've read it, is that, that um, Jesus, in a miraculous way, feeds these 5,000 people, and there were probably at least double that, if you figure there were women and children, with this small amount of bread and this fish, and then this whole this whole discussion comes up. And one reason why it comes up is because in the Jewish culture of that time, the people who were waiting for the Messiah to come 
one of the signs that they thought was going to indicate that the Messiah had come was that the manna from heaven was going to start coming again. You remember when Israel was 40 years in the wilderness in the book of Exodus, there, of course, was was little water and, and no place to grow food. And so God, every morning, sent this manna that fed the people for that day. He did that every morning, six days a week, except, of course, on the Sabbath when they were supposed to collect on Friday enough uh, for the Saturday. And the Jewish people had this idea that when the Messiah came, the manna would start flowing again. So here's Jesus doing this. And so there's this whole discussion about what's happening here. What does it mean? Who is this Jesus? Where does he come from? Why is he doing this? And what does it say about us as a Jewish people and our history? And then Jesus kind of caps it off. And again, I'm, there's, there's a whole complex chapter here, so I'm, I'm, I'm shortening and summarizing a bit with this, with this verse in John 6.35, which we'll project here. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This life word, or a, you could keep it on the verse, please, Christopher. Uh, this life word, uh, the noun life, the verb live, and the related verb make alive appear about 56 times in the, in the Gospel of John. Most of those are in the chapters 4 to 6, and 18 of them are in chapter 6 alone. This chapter is zooming in on this idea. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, what does he mean? What's he trying to say? Why is that so important? And again, for those of us raised in the American evangelical church, our thoughts tend to jump to to the future when we're going to have that life out there. Somewhere in the future, we're going to have the real life. This is just a shadow, and perhaps a dark shadow, and perhaps even an evil shadow of it. Where we're really heading is out there. Marianne Mai Thompson, in her book, The God of the Gospel of John, puts it this way. The concept of life looks back toward creation. It looks back toward creation. It anticipates the blessing of the new life of the resurrection, especially the blessing of being in the divine presence. And it lies at the intersection of past and future, where in the present it offers communion with the living God. This life concept in the scriptures, particularly coming out of the Hebrew culture, is looking back, it's looking forward, it's focusing a bit on the present, and is defined by communion with the living God, by meeting him. And of course, through this whole Gospel of John, we are saying and asking ourselves the question, what does it mean to commune with God? What does it mean to meet him? And we're saying, well, you, you, you know that by looking at Jesus. God sent Jesus 
the creator of the world, the one who's going to reign over everything at the end, the future, but he's here now. And in him and with him and in communion with him is life. And Paul says that in, in his letter to the Colossians in the first chapter uh, quite clearly. Colossians 1, verse 17. He, that is Jesus, is before all things, so we're going back. And in him all things hold together. That's like present. That's like right now. Your molecules and cells are being held together by Jesus. Sunlight that's coming through these windows, trees, the animals, the oceans, galaxies, the love that you have for the people that you love the most. See how concrete this gets? In Jesus, all things are held together. Jesus is not some distant or some future thing. And nor can it be that all the things that Jesus is holding together are evil and we need to try to escape them. It just can't be. Jesus is holding them together. And then Paul goes on in in verses 19 to 20. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So not only is Jesus holding everything together, he's reconciling all things. Notice the all in there. And they're things and making peace. So when John and when Jesus and when Paul and when the New Testament talks about this life and talks about this eternal life, that's not just some spiritual um, vague thing in the future. This is like right now. This is life right as we live it today, rooted in the past, headed for the future. But it's in the mud and the dirt and the beauty and the joy of right this Second. Again, one of my favorite theologians, uh, Frederick Buechner, I look him always up when I need a good quote. In other words, to live eternal life in the full and final sense is to be with God as Christ is with him and with each other as Christ is with us. Just a magnificent one sentence. And again, when we read the words as Christians, eternal life in the New Testament, we we almost immediately think of something that's going to happen in the future, way out there, far away. No. To live eternal life is to be with God as Christ is with us, like right now. God, Christ bringing God to us, And then that life with each other, as Christ is with us. And then Buechner goes on. Listen to your life. 
See it for the fathomless mystery that it is. In the boredom and pain of it, no less than in the excitement and gladness, touch, taste, smell your way to the holy and hidden heart of it. Because in the last analysis, all moments are key moments, and life itself is grace. Life you're living right now is given by Jesus. He's making it happen. He's enabling it. He's present in it. He's calling us in the boredom and pain and in the excitement and gladness to touch, taste, and smell using all of these physical senses to get to the heart of it. Because in the end, all moments are key moments. And life itself is this great gift of God. So how do you grab onto this? How do you, how do you, how do you get a hold of it? And again, I think many, many, many of us are mostly waiting for that future time. Or we're drugging ourselves by whatever addiction is your favorite addiction. And that can be a whole list of things. Or by just getting to the next thing. Or just running along. By just moving. And never stopping to ask yourself the question, what is real life? And how can I really live? Let me give you just a couple of things that I think of. And a lot of these are even rooted in the last couple of months of experiences that I've had. One, of course, the first one I mentioned, is what we normally call the spiritual disciplines. And again, not to make it a spiritual thing, but Jesus does come to us and God does speak to us in his word. Are you reading this? Is this a source of life for you? I don't care how you do it. In this book, God is showing us something of who he is, and especially in the person of Jesus. What role does this play in your life? What about prayer? I'm not necessarily saying that you at a certain time every day for 20 minutes or a half hour, or even five minutes, get down on your knees and fold your hands. Whatever prayer looks like for you. Is there some moment in your life, in your daily or weekly or monthly life, that you're stopping to say, wait a minute, you're here. It's not just me. What about the community with other Christians? Is there anyone in your life, perhaps besides your partner, and maybe even you don't do it very well with him or her, with whom you share your life? With whom you could really be honest. This is how I feel today. This is what is happening. What's happening with you? And where you can touch hearts 
I suspect that for the majority of us, the answer to that is either no or not very many. We just do not do that well. What about making contact with your body? It's poo-pooed a lot nowadays, especially by super conservative people. This idea of paying attention, where am I standing? How am I standing? How are my feet touching the floor? Am I taking a deep breath? Is my neck loose? Where are the tension points? Are you in touch with your body? Because Jesus is holding your body together. And when you're in touch with your body, you're in touch with the life that he has made. And your feelings, the same thing. When is the last time you have sat down and asked yourself, what am I really feeling right now? And put it into words. Because that's part of your life too. It's what Jesus has given you. That's where Jesus is. He's in your feelings. And again, if you're racing through life, always on to the next thing, always on to the next goal, or drugging yourself with whatever favorite drug you have, you're going to miss this deep, deep life with its joys and with its pains. But all of it is part of this life. And I've already mentioned making contact with other people. The story in the New Testament that came up to me as I was preparing this week was, and maybe it's familiar to you, after Jesus' resurrection, the two disciples, I believe they were a man and a wife, going down to Emmaus, and Jesus joined them there and talked to them about what had happened. They didn't know it was him. And they sat down on table, at table, and Jesus took the bed and broke it, and then what? Their eyes were opened. And they reckon, oh, here he is. In the cultures of the Bible and in many cultures around the world, the place where you meet each other is around the table in the breaking of the bread. And I suspect that there's a number of us listening who never in the course of a week sit down at table with somebody else and share a meal. We're doing fast food, picking up a Wawa, eating it in the car, on the way to our next appointment. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, necessarily. But where are you making contact with other people in a way that gives you the opportunity to stop and say, who are you, who am I? We are here together breaking this bread with our joys, and our sorrows. And then not to mention the nature. Cindy already mentioned it in New Zealand. She's just blown away by what they call in New Zealand, the plants are on steroids. I'm more of a desert person. Put me in Utah. I mean, I enjoy New Zealand, but if I had a choice in terms of nature, I'm going to the desert. Doesn't matter. Not all of us are nature person. Some are way more than others. If you ever take a moment to let the nature just move into you, 
move into your life. So any contact that you have with this creation that God made, that Jesus is holding together and that he's renewing. How much life are we missing for a whole bunch of reasons? I want to share with you a couple of things that have helped me over the last months. The first one is a welcoming prayer. I hope you're going to be able to see it. Uh, yeah, it looks like it's going to be okay. This is a prayer that you could pray like at the beginning of the day. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I welcome everything that comes to me in this moment because I know it is for my healing. I welcome all thoughts, feelings, emotions, persons, situations, and conditions. I let go of my desire for security. I let go of my desire for approval. I let go of my desire for control. I let go of my desire to change any situation, condition, person, or myself. I open to the love and presence of God and the healing action and grace within. Welcome everything, including your pain and your sorrow. Here's another way to express it. It's called the guest house. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if there are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes, because, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. And Rumi was a Muslim philosopher who lived in Iran, or Iraq, I think. Iran or Iraq, I forget which one, in the 14th century. And then this, a totally different approach from Wendell Berry. I go among the trees and sit still. All my stirring becomes quiet around me like circles on water. My tasks lie in their places where I left them, asleep like cattle. Then what is afraid of me comes and lives a while in my sight. What it fears in me leaves me, and the fear of me leaves it. It sings, and I hear its song. Then what I am afraid of comes. I live for a while in its light, in its sight. What I fear in it leaves me, and the fear of it leaves me. It sings, and I hear its song. After days of labor, mute in my consternations, I hear my song at last, and I sing it. As we sing, the day turns. The trees move. See how rooted in the present this is? Looking at yourself, looking around you, what's happening? Where is life? 
I've printed out copies of these three things. They're on the, uh, uh, there's 15 copies on the table in the back. That's probably enough for everybody here. Feel free to take one. Uh, you can Google it. You'll find it on internet immediately. Uh, so you can find it there too, but feel free to take them and use them. And for me, this is a way to, to experience life now. I've been here for eight years, almost eight years, and you've probably never um, heard me do an altar call. I'm not going to do one this morning in the physical sense that I'm going to ask you to come forward. But at the end of John 6, this is what happened, verses 66, you can project that, thanks. After this, all of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, this, this little group here, do you want to go away as well? Because Jesus had given them hard stuff. He had blown up their paradigms, blown up the way they thought. Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Is Jesus your source of life? Or are you turning away by being busy, distracted, perhaps your sorrow, your addictions, your self-medications? doing everything you can, even perhaps being a pious Christian who's just hanging on with his or her fingernails until we get to those pearly gates up there. That's when it's going to happen. Even you and me. Where else would we go for real life? Where else would you go? Why would you not make the choice to move towards this Jesus who broke the bread and broke the fish and fed those 10,000 or 12,000 or 8,000 people with so much that they had all these baskets left over? That's the life that he offers, that he provides, that he gives today and now for each one of us as individuals, for us as a group, for us as a society, and for us as a world. Let's take a moment and reflect on this. Uh, the song, I will raise him up, I am the bread of life. And then at the last verse is, um, is confessing belief in Jesus as the bread of life. The middle verse is not, I believe it's not in English. I believe it's in Spanish, but I don't know that. So I didn't put subtitles there because I don't know what language it is. And I don't speak that language. There's a section without subtitles. I am the bread of life.
Help us grab the life that you have given us in Jesus, the life that's offered today, rooted in the past and headed toward the future, but deeply rooted in today and who we are today. I want to trust you. I want to give our lives to you. We want to come closer to you, to you closer to each other. We ask that you would breathe new life into each one of us, especially those of us who, who really need it right this morning. For whatever reason, just need some new energy, some new life, some new perspective, a new way of looking at things, some hope, some joy way to understand what's happening to us, what's happening in us. How that works is a great mystery. We pray that you would come with your Holy Spirit and, and do that work in us this morning. We need it so very badly. As Trinity Church, in our communities in which we live, in our workplaces, in our schools, so much pain, so much agony, so much alienation, so much rushing around, so much ignoring of what's really happening under the surface, so much distraction. Where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. So turn us towards you anew, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.